So g'day, welcome to episode three of the Well Brewed Podcast. My name's Lockie, and along with my mates Clemmy and Jake, we're drinking fresh local beer and chatting about building breweries. So in today's episode, we're answering the question, is making good beer enough to be successful? But first, lads, what are we drinking? <laughs> Lazza. It's, it's old Larry from up on the sunny coast. <laughs> you know, I, um, I heard a rumor, an unconfirmed rumor, that the character on Larry is actually Kristen. But uh, he won't confirm or deny. Well, I think he actually denies it, <laughs> but uh, comes up a lot. Mm. <laughs> it does look a little bit like him. That's mm. a good little hot take. Yeah. Nice segue onto more pressing topics. Um, is making good beer enough to be successful? So I guess candidly, when I started my journey, I used to think that it was the case that you could just start a brewery, make good beer, and you'd be successful. The reality is that there's a lot more to building and running a brewery than just making good beer. In fact, I believe it only accounts for about a quarter of your success, and there are three other key elements that need to be addressed also. So don't get me wrong, it's super important to strive to make the best beer you can, but there are heaps of other balls you've got to juggle in order for it all to come together. Mm. Now, it might sound like we're being pessimistic, but we're not trying to discourage anyone from getting into this. We just think it's important you go into an adventure like this, eyes wide open. I also think it's important to note, as always, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And anything we talk about here is from our experience, and it's what we've seen work and not work. It's by no means definitive or exhaustive. And no cat was hurt in the making of this podcast. <laughs> So in our experience, the four high-level points that require equal attention when starting a brew pub are quality beer, hospitality experience, and it's the experience your customers are having when they're at your venue, branding and marketing, and business management. Now, we'll dive into each of these today, but let's start with making beer. So, Jake. I'll just give some potentially like high-level stuff. I'm not going to go into any crazy detail because I think most people listening to this podcast at this point are not going to be far enough down the path where any detail is going to be too um, engaging. So we're just going to start by saying uh, in regard, there are probably four big points when it comes to brewing and brewing quality that you really need to put your head to. So it's things like recipe design, process and procedures, um, starting a basic lab and having the ability to do some analyses, even if it's not full kit, um, and really diving into and understanding that beer is made in your fermenter and not in your brew house. Like I'm not saying that the brew house is... You can make good beer with average wort and you can make terrible beer with great wort. Yeah. So, Cheers to that. Cheers to that. <laughs> um, but I love so, the brew house. Oh, yeah. 100%. Brew house is important, why. but it doesn't make beer. Brew house is definitely important. It makes wort. It makes wort. Beer's made in the fermenter. Um, so starting off with uh, recipe design. Recipe design, the best principle to follow is KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. Like, Not five malts? No, don't put more than five malts in a beer. You don't. You want to limit the amount of stock that you have on hand at any one point. 
one, if you're in a brew pub, you probably not, you probably don't have the luxury of extreme amounts of space that you can just chuck around willy nilly for all your malt storage. Um, two, it's like most of Australia has high humidity and malt can be quite severely damaged by humidity. And also fresh, like when in regards to um, hops, fresh hops are best. You don't want to have hops sitting there for years. You don't want to be using hops that are too old. You don't want to be, have loads of money sitting dead in stock that's not being um, utilized. That'll yeah. ruin your cash flow. So what about like, I guess if you're building a range of beers and a range of recipes <clears throat> to start with, you would try and build some recipes around using probably the same base malt would be a good thing to do, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Similar base malts. Cause you're not going to probably on a small brew pub, you're probably not going to be using full bags of spec malts. Um, and the same goes for hops, you know, like you want to, I know guys like Smokey at Corumbans tries to base his recipes around using like ideally full bags or half bags for different charges. So that you're getting through full bags of hops quickly so that you're not um, just having half bags sitting around for weeks or months at an end, on end and just having a detrimental effect on your finished product. Yeah, because that's another another great point there is that a, a lot of people probably don't realise this, but oxygen degrades hops. So that's why they're sold in those foil packets and they're packed under inert gas uh, It's so that they don't go off. So as soon as you break that seal and start putting it in beers, they're compromised. And I don't know if you've had the pleasure of smelling an old bag of hops, but it's not fantastic. It's a bit um, cheesy. Very cheesy. So I guess the idea is to just keep your recipes streamlined, have a core range. I know that's not what a lot of people want to have, but <laughs> ideally you would have a core range of beers that are using streamlined ingredients that you've thought about that get that are definitive styles that have their own character and give your brand a bit of an identity. Now to segue onto dissolved oxygen from hops is probably a good, um, good chain or a good place to do it is a lot of people need to understand that with procedures, um, around the fermentation side and the, the cold side of the brew house, the main thing that you're trying to do is limit any ingress of dissolved oxygen into your beer. And we're talking in the parts per billion here, not parts per million, parts per billion. So you have to be pedantic and you have to build procedures that think about every little nook and cranny. And every time you connect O2, uh, CO2 to something that you've got positive pressure, that you're displacing any air that might be there, um, and really trying to build levels of redundancies in your purging. Like, so maybe you might be under 500 parts per billion by um, pressurizing and releasing your bright tank three times. So do it five if you don't have any way of validating. But those sorts of procedures go a long way in preserving your beer integrity. Sorry, as far as like processes and building, designing processes when you're starting up, is there a good resource or something? Obviously, we don't have time to go into everything today, but is there a book or a um, 
I don't know, the, uh, any other podcast or, uh, you know, should you pay a brewing consultant if you don't know? Talking you know? to brewers is a good one. Um, I know that like we work with our customers a fair bit to uh, help them build. We have templates that we customize to their brew house to help them build uh, the, the basis of the procedures that they can then apply down the track. But yeah, there's not not really anybody that I've found that's offering a one-stop shop to write procedures and customize them for each um, intricate brewing system. There's some, um, I mean, everyone's going to be at certainly at different levels. So it's hard yeah. to recommend different texts. Obviously, there's some there's some really common ones that, like Wolfgang Kunz's um, brewing technical. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's like a bible in the brew house. Slightly more engineering slant, though. Like- yeah, it's it's very much well, it's practical engineering, is it? But I mean, you do need to have a certain level of understanding to be able to read that style. Yeah, of it's not the book. most um, digestible. I found no. I think there's a MBAA, um, there's a book, Fermentation, Cellaring and Packaging Operations, Practical Handbook, it's a Master Brewers Association. Um, I have read or seen before, it's pretty good, it's quite technical. They have a group of books, don't they, Lockie? So I think consume what you can, like to get a bit of brewing best practice. It depends on the level of understanding of your operator as well, because... If there's somebody that needs to be told, open this valve, then close this valve, then turn this knob, then do this, then those yep. books kind of come at things from a higher angle. So it depends on the ability of the person doing it, what their um, yeah. disposition is towards understanding engineering concepts. And Yeah, and- I, think, I think those MBAA ones are a little bit more practical, practically based. Yeah. Um, I look, there's, a th- there's three, raw materials and brew house, fermentation, cellaring, and then brewery engineering and plant operations. It's 129 bucks on the, on the website. That's a steal. It's a steal. Yeah, I'm going to buy it now. Maybe just the takeaway from that then is that ideally once you're in FV, you want to keep DO away as much as you can is the king yep. of processing yes. any beer. And... Um, for any resources there's this books we talked about there's consultants you can talk to who can help you or um you know mbaa podcast is pretty good as well for some detailed stuff you guys said before it's you know fermentation is what really makes a flavor pro- profile sing so yeast management and just mm. you know, making sure you're using fresh yeast yep mm. um managing yeast correctly during fermentation yes and that's and that's why um that's a great little segue into what lab equipment you should start up with and what you shouldn't skimp on and and um basically to ensure the consistency of your beer the lab what what lab equipment should you start with now there's some that are going to be like non-negotiable like you have to have a ph meter and i would suggest not just using pool tape and I would suggest not just <laughs> going and buying the cheapest thing off Kegland, actually go and spend a bit of money and get a pH meter that is going to give you reliable results that tells you when it needs to be um, 
what's it called? Calibrated. Calibrated. Yeah. No, and no slight on Kegland. Those guys do wicked stuff. And no, Kegland is fantastic. I love Kegland. It's yeah. gotten me out of so many pinches. Just as an example, don't buy the cheapest Just, pH meter. You can don't get. buy the cheap. Maybe have one as a backup. Yeah. But in case you drop your expensive one. Yeah. But um, buy a decent pH meter. Yeah. So lab, other um, lab equipment for a brew pub you think is important? I mean, obviously so guys aren't going to be spending it. 30 grand on a Anton Pass suite necessarily. You know, if no. you were starting up, what what else do we need that's crucial? So I think um, other than a pH, you really need to be checking density when the work comes out of the brew house. That's the yeah. only way you're going to be able to get reliable uh, alcohol tracking. Yeah, should be um, checking it multiple times in the brew house, I would think. Yeah, well, yes. But d- it... It depends how much of a sticker you are for reproducing the same beer after beer, but yeah. definitely from the start of fermentation to the end of fermentation, you need to have the densities. So what are we what are we using for that? I mean, there's some decent hydrometers you can get that are certified, calibrated ones. Yeah, they're probably a good first point of call for anybody that's on a tight budget. I think they're only a few hundred bucks each. You get zero yes. to 10, 10 to 20, something like that. Yes. And then I think... What's that uh, other one that you always talk about, Clemmy? Yeah, Beera is is the Brewing into Laboratory Reference Analytes. So it's similar <laughs> to BAPS in in the U, in the UK, but it essentially allows you four rounds of testing for 175 bucks a year, and it means you can go and validate whatever you're using, whatever equipment you're using in the laboratory. You can validate that it's um, within specification by analysing those beers and sending them back to them and, and sending the results back to them. Are they able to also do things like um, IBUs and just fact-checking your calculators and things like that? I think there's a full raft of analyses that they offer um, and IBUs is in there. Mm. I believe it's that they send you samples, right? And you analyze them through your lab and you send them the results and then they tell you whether you're accurate or not or how close mm. you were to actual. <clears throat> so it's a way of verifying your own own equipment. Equipment, yeah, okay. So ABV, apparent extract, color, bitterness, pH, CO2, and total acidity. Well, I guess just closing remarks on that. I mean, for me, the takeaway is beer is made in the FV, not in the brew house. So it's, everyone gets excited, super excited about standing in the brew house all day and just making work, man. It's, it's getting the, it's all, all the yeasty boys, they do the hard work. So um, anything else takeaway for you guys? DO, like managing DO through the process. The number one thing you can do to improve your beer quality is manage DO through fermentation, maturation into packaging. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I've seen a lot of people buy CO2 meters first, but you can tell CO2 by taste. You can't tell DO until yep. it's sat on in a fridge for six months. Yep. Hospitality experience, not your experience in hospitality, the experience your customers are having. So I guess my thoughts around this is that it's such a competitive market these days mm-hmm. for brew pubs, particularly around cities. 
Um, this kind of feeds into the marketing and branding piece a little bit, but it's so important to have a nice venue where people want to come. You know, if you're just sticking a brewery in a shed and hoping that people will come because your beer's there, I think you're laughing. You know, it's a very different landscape as far as brew pub offerings go to what it was 10 or 15 years ago. Mm. And I think it really need to consider what you're doing and, and how, and the experience people are having, you know, when, when they're in your venue, you know, you're looking at the feel and vibe of your venue. Music's really important. What sort of music you're selecting? Um, who's, um, like what's appropriate for your customers? Like who you really understanding who your customers are and what's appropriate that they want to listen to, not what the, Brewer wants to listen to hardcore punk all day, which we all do, I'm sure, but it's not necessarily appropriate when you've got, if you've got a venue that caters to young families, you know, need to consider that. There's other things, you know, ambient sounds, like we've put in venues that heaps of hard surfaces, you get a hundred people in there and it's awful to be in that space and it's really loud and tinny and echoey. And so, you know, there's sound baffling, there's really expensive acoustic panels you can buy or you can DIY, I've seen people buy foam and stuff from Clark Rabo, et cetera, um, to deal with that, you know, temperature, you're getting fans or the air condition. If you've got airflow, what's the ambient light like? What are your lights? So they just bright, bright fluoros or, you know, all these things seem like funny little details, but when you have a great, it's a difference between having a great experience at a venue and a, and a really shitty experience. Yeah, hundred percent. Like I've been in venues that's been on like a Wednesday lunch and because they don't have a curated playlist, they're blasting like Friday dance mixes. Yeah. And there's like three people in the venue and you're trying to have a relaxing, yeah. like drinking a burger or talk some work, workshop some stuff. Yeah. And you can't even talk, you know, cause it, but yeah, yeah. there's, yeah. Mm-ts, there's... Mm-ts, mm-ts, baby. <laughs> So, yeah, I think like that's something really to consider, you know, venue manager, if you're hiring someone that's not yourself, you know, it could be when you're starting a brewery that you're doing everything. But if you're not, you know, like that's a really important um, person to a point because they will drive the culture of your team and how knowledgeable your staff are and and how they deal with customers and, and whether they're a yes venue or a stick by the rules venue, you know, like all these things are really important. The yes venue is a thing I actually learned from a mate who runs a, a bar and uh, bottle shop. What drinking? What does it mean in what, Melbourne? What is the, yeah. Well, it's just it's like if someone wants something, you give it to them, unless it's unreasonable. If someone comes in and you're a fine dining bar and you only have fancy cocktails and they want a Bundy and Coke, you give them a Bundy and Coke because they're a customer and they want to give you money. And if you say, no, we don't do that, you look pretentious. They feel like an idiot. Oh, that's my number one problem with Melbourne coffee shops. (laughs) Well, they won't give you a flat white. They, or some of them will only give me a flat white. Right. Like there's ones that will only do full cream milk. There's other ones that will only do espressos. Mate, you got to um, give the customer what they want. You got to ask for a long macchiato topped up and then you'll get a flat white. Oh, maybe that (laughs) works in Perth. I don't Don't, know. Don't don't mention that if that's wrong because I don't actually care. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I guess, I guess the po- key point here is that, um, super important what your venue's like and how it feels and the experience people are having indoor plants, whatever it is. Um, you just need to, you don't want to, you soulless, need to have an offering. You don't want to have a soulless vapid venue that people yeah. are coming to. So 
don't get me wrong. I think I think uh, craft brew pubs have done a an amazing job at disrupting the old school hoteliers. Mm. You know, there's no pokies, there's no um, you know, there's no TABs generally, uh, and so and there is they are kid friendly, dog friendly venues that are more family orientated. So mm. creating that space means, you know, you do have to be, I guess, a little bit vanilla, but, um, yeah, you've got to be respectful of the, of the customers that are bringing in, that you're bringing in and understand who your customers are. So be engaging as you possibly can in your venue to those, to those customers. Yep. Yeah, cool. Um, do, do we sell them a Corona? I'm still not sure about that. Well, <laughs> only if you brew it yourself. I think that's enough on hospitality experience. Um, marketing and branding. I feel really strongly that, you know, your brand is your beer. That great beer with a shitty brand is just could be anything. No one's going to buy it. I mean, how many breweries do we see or have you seen where have amazing beer and average branding and, and they're not? not selling no one recognizes it because again about the experience having an amazing brand whether it's on a can or the the um, branding and the logo or how i'm being talked to from that brand influences so much how i experience when i taste that beer because it's not a blind tasting you're not judging a beer comp you're in a in a space or drinking a can of beer that someone else has produced and presented to you in a way so how it's presented is, is so much of it. It's a growing market, but it's still a small market. It's not, it's still not really the mainstream. So unless you, you're trying to apply, uh, like you're trying to appeal to a small percentage of a market that's dispersed in a large population. So you need to be out there. You need to be vocal. Otherwise people aren't going to know about you. Like mm -hmm. I, I'm sometimes surprised when I find a, a new brewery that's been in Brisbane that I've never heard of. And I lived here for the whole time and heavily invested in this industry, but they don't do their marketing and you don't know about them. Mm. Just coming back to the experience, like you mentioned as well, the, the venues that sell a lot of beer are the ones that are creating an experience. Mm. Mm. Uh, so you're linking the experience with, the beer so the mm. beer might not be the most amazing beer but you've had an you've had a great experience with your friends or family or whatever and so you've linked that experience with the beer that you're drinking so you know that that in itself might lead you to go out and buy a carton of it because yeah. you had a great time when you were drinking it last yeah mm. totally. so that experience and that engagement with the brand is super important to sell your beer yeah and, and customers are fussy yeah they always want something new and exciting and engaging otherwise they'll go to the pub down the road on meat raffle wednesday <laughs> well you know i'll be there i guess like <laughs> it's um you know and coming back to how competitive the market is these days with craft beer and you know it's still only 10 percent, but there's so many was there 650 700 breweries in australia and most of them yeah. are in that 10% of volume. You really got to think about how you're going to differentiate yourself from what everyone else is doing. Like you're competing with six, not necessarily 600 others, but 
there's a lot of people you're competing with. So you need to think about what you're doing that's different. Why would someone buy your pale ale over anyone else's pale ale and the brewery down the road's pale ale? Like it's, again, getting back to like, is making good beer enough? It definitely isn't because making a great pale ale, you know, in its on its own is probably not that hard a thing to do. It's a skill you can learn and that's the thing. There's plenty of great pale ales out there in the world. Here's one, for example. Um, but I think you need to do something that differentiates yourself from what everyone else is doing so they have a reason that they feel compelled to actually pick up your beer over someone else's or come to your brew pub over someone else's. Mm. Um, and it's all about how you communicate with your customers and how people feel when they interact with your brand, whether that's online or when it's they see you in a bottle shop or whether they're at your venue. It all, it all links in together and it's quite a complex piece and I'm definitely not an expert in this space. I'm just quite passionate about it because I think it's so important and it's often overlooked. And, and if you're really starting a brewery and you want to be successful, it's something you really need to put some some solid focus on. I'm far from an expert myself as well. Um, but if you're only if you're selling wholesale, the brand is absolutely so important. Yeah. If you're selling across your own bar, then it's still important because you've got people, people still need to engage with what the brand is all about. So if it's confusing and they don't understand it, then, you know, that's a bit of a barrier. Yeah, totally. Just a thought. Um, one of our good friends, Jesse from craft instinct is an expert on building craft beer brands. And, um, we might have to do another episode with her in the future. That's a good call. I think that's enough on that. So finally, um, we're talking about business management, which I think is super crucial. I mean, you can get the other three right. You can have amazing beer, an amazing experience. You come to your venue and your branding marketing's right. And if you don't manage your business well, it's all going to go to shit anyway, right? So probably Clemmy is, you know, the mature one of the bunch. Maybe you could, you got the greatest beard anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Managing... Brewing's one thing. Managing the brewing business is quite a different beast. Um, great to have, great to have experience and understanding of what it takes to make good beer and all the processes that go into that. But like you say, you need to understand your numbers. So really understand your margins and your cost of goods. Uh, that's super important. So. If you can understand all your raw material costs, all your expenses and what your margins are and whether they actually reflect uh, the bottom line. So, you know, because it, it, it is a really tough little piece to put together mm. um, and break down all the cogs and expenses and overheads, etc. cetera. Uh, but if you can do it, and then compare it against what you're actually achieving. And that's a really good place to start and keep monitoring because you, you know, if you continue to optimize and make some savings then you should see improvements on the bottom line. Um, but we all know as salesmen that we like to give discounts and cut mm -hmm. margins and all of those yep. things. Yeah. Um, even more reason to understand what your margins are 
and how you're making money and invest in the right areas to grow your business uh, with the minimum number of resources and make the most money. So, I mean, across, we I think we've talked about it in another podcast, but across the bar is number one. You're going to make the most margin across the bar, then keg sales, and then um, small pack. So understanding all those different margins in all the different pack sizes is really important and you know, then you can allocate your resources appropriately to where you're making your margins. I think the next one is really building a high-performing team. I find that if you're too busy to, if you're too busy and you're not thinking about the team, then that's going to hurt you in the long run. Um, my tactic in the past has really been to focus on leveraging the assets in your people uh, because they are your biggest assets. They're the ones that are going to engage with your business a lot more. And, you know, they're the ones actually doing the work generally. If you're managing this process, they're the ones that are actually doing the work. So a team is a group of, you know, a group of people working towards a common goal. So, what would be some like what would be the key appointments probably for a startup? I mean, there's probably yeah, three or four that you could choose from of, of and you could be you could be all of them yourself as well. Some people do that. But what would be the key roles, I guess, um, that you'd be looking to recruit or fill in some way? You definitely want a head brewer who's going to be responsible for those operations and for mentoring and training people under them. Which could be the business owner. It could be the business owner, the head brewer. And quite often it is Mm -hmm. uh, up to a certain point. I think other key roles, if you've got a micro or laboratory person either as you know, a brewing technician or brewing operator, brewing you know, assistant brewer, brewer, whatever you want to call those people. Um, someone with some technical laboratory knowledge and a knowledge of micro is super important, I think, within the team because mm. you need someone to hold the the team accountable for those, you know, those technical. You know, there's technical things like hygiene and micro. I mean, if just, you can, if you've got someone who really understands it, then they're going to hold the rest of the team accountable and set a very high standard. Yeah, I just think mm. about filthy brewers <laughs> being held accountable. It's yeah, no, it's true. It's so I true. I think, and then just in a small brew team, if you're packaging, then someone who's got a engineering or you know, very Know, practical, technical background, mechanical background. Mm-hmm. You know, packaging's very engineering based, very mechanical based. So, someone who can problem solve a packaging line is is super important as well. Like, cause it's such a time sink. You've mm-hmm. got lots of people involved. Generally, um, downtime's a killer. Uh, 
So if you've got someone who can problem solve well and, um, you know, be reasonably calm in, in the face of uh, very frustrating filling machines mm-hmm. uh, on the odd occasion, then that's, that's a challenge. I think that's very useful. As yeah. your team grows, you know, you really need to consider logistics and how you're moving beer around. Yeah. What um, about outside of brewery operations, like just within the team, the business as a whole? I mean, yeah. I think before expanding the brewery team, I think you probably need to expand your sales. Sales is probably someone you should hire before you should hire brewers in, in all honesty. If, you, if you're working on a wholesale model, then hire a salesperson before you hire a brewer. Uh, because the pipeline for selling in is is it's pretty it's a long pipeline to be able to manage um, yeah in order to make your wholesale business sing you know there's a fair amount of time required to go from where to go so you know there's a little there's a lot of relationship building and prospecting and hitting the ground to really make that work if you can come in and say oh look we've got a demand uh then that makes it a lot easier for your brewing team to start making beer and be confident they're going to sell and have have the kind of business model that can afford you to have a brewery Hmm. so sales is definitely number one if you're having a wholesale model if it's a purely across the bar brewing model then you you can potentially get away with that and have some good brewers for a bit but then equally as much, you'll probably make a lot of money at, um, in events. So you should have a venue manager that's focused on events, that's trying to get, you know, weddings on your books and things like that, that are going to bring in a fair bit of cash that can sustain you for the the not-so-peak seasons. Well, we, we've actually seen people model their business around events. Yeah. It's so so much easier to... So much easier to schedule staff. Staffing is such a huge cost. Um, managing bar staff and casual staff is a real challenge for any venue. So understanding how many people are going to be at your event, having a bit of a guess as to how much volume they're going to consume allows you to schedule your staff and get the best bang for your buck. Um mm. Because you know, some days you're busy, other days you're not. Could be the weather, could be something on beside you, could be any variation of factors. You can't predict it. And so you can be overstaffed or understaffed just so easily. So managing that and having events is really a fallback position to you know, getting the best bang for your buck because it's easier to schedule. Hmm. Yep. Hundred percent. Well, just on building teams, I mean, really, you know, recruiting and building teams. I think it's really important to spend time on the recruiting process. Don't hire someone because they're the only one available. Um, make sure you reference check. Like I always reference check. Uh, and make sure you have a really robust interview process where your scenario-based questions and really trying to get to know that person uh, in an interview, so that you know you walk away with a bit more of an understanding of who that person is and how and how they're going to fit within the team, rather than 
um, what their capabilities are because that's probably more important than someone's technical capabilities a lot of the time. If their values are aligned with what you're trying to achieve in your business, then that's, and they you think they're going to be a great fit, then they can often be trained to be great employees. Yeah, we could Sorry. say uh, attitude and aptitude. If you've got yeah, those, absolutely. it's yeah. skills you can learn. Those are the things you can't learn. Managing, I mean, aside from the brewing part of the process, the next thing for me is around scheduling and forecasting. So, you know, we all know in the brewing industry we have peaks and troughs. Like in summer where, you know, it's backs to the wall, You're everyone's, busy as trying to just get beer out because it's your money-making season and i.e. Christmas i.e. Christmas yeah so you're making beer like it's going out of fashion in September October and um yeah and then June July you're wondering what you've done wrong <laughs> don't build the most incredibly crazy website and not website excel sheet you can absolutely find because it's going to change seven times uh, when you're production scheduling, build something basic and easy to understand that people can actually utilize, try and have a, you know, I like to have a sign off date so that, you know, we're not changing it after this date, you know, unless it is absolutely critical, mm. we're not changing it. Cause I, cause people like to know, people like to walk in and know what they're up to for the day. They don't like to walk in and go, so what are we doing today? That's good. So, um, <sighs> yep. And then forecasting, sales forecasting is tough ass. It's like, so you've almost got to go with your gut and not accept things that are just completely unrealistic. I think also collect data. Yeah, absolutely mm. collect data. Like, I think that that is probably the last point is be collecting data, be collecting rates of sales. Look at like how fast you're selling through certain SKUs in your bar and often also reevaluate. Like if there's a beer that's under, underperforming that you love, maybe it might break your heart, but get rid of it. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. running a brewery brewing beers is not about brewing the beers you like. It's about brewing the beers your customers like. Yeah, Jack, yeah. you've made a you've made a great point. Like, you might think this beer is amazing and it's awesome, and you want to you've you've wed to it, and you don't want to change the recipe. You don't want to do anything. It's not selling that it's not good business sense to keep brewing it because it gets longer times in maturation and picks up more do. It gets older. Like nobody's drinking it the same way you're drinking it with your cellar tongue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the the beers it comes back to this re recipe as well. We've gone almost full circle. Like if you can really hone a recipe each time you brew it, the more often you brew it, the better it's going to be. So it suddenly mm. becomes this flagship beer that, you know, because you've brewed it a thousand times and you've just worked on it each time and made some small changes to make it more palatable, make the hops pop, whatever you want to do, but... They're the ones you sell because they're moving. And ABV plays a massive part in that. I know that like as a as a brewer, craft brewer in particular, I like seven percent beers. 
I like them a lot. I like 8% beers. I like 10% beers. But your average punter walking through the door that's driven into your brewery does not. <laughs> they might they might take a couple home, but they're not going to be moving volumes. It's the 4% lagers and pale ales that are going to walk out in volumes because people can drink volumes. Well, they, they hold up your whole capacity as well. So... One, they're going to get older in maturation. Two, there's less turns, so you don't brew them as often. So you're more likely to be holding on to old raw materials and bits and pieces. Like um, Then when you do brew them, they hang around for a long time. Your kegs are sitting in your cold room for a long time. Uh, yeah, There's so many good reasons not to go down that path. You need to be ruthless. If it's underperforming yes. and it's hanging around for more than six months or more than three months even probably you, you need to consider cutting it executed um, yeah yeah so that's where we might wrap up on that's about that for episode three of the well-brewed podcast and as always if you have any ideas or subjects you'd like to hear about or any specific questions that you want answered please hit us up on facebook or instagram at wellbrewed that's w-e-l-l-b-r-e-w-d only two e's in there or email us at podcast at wellbrewed.com.au. Cheers and beers. Have you been practicing that in the shower? <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>